in Great Empire of the Dawn, Dragon Lords of Ancient Ashai, which you all seem to have liked. Thanks so much for all the great comments. We made the case that the Great Empire of the Dawn is really just another name for the ancient, pre-Valerian Dragonlord civilization that many of us, including Septon Barth himself, have long suspected once existed in Ashai by the Shadow. Seemingly with the use of their dragons, the Great Empire of the Dawn ruled pretty much all of Far Eastern Essos, an empire as big as Valyria at its height. But they apparently weren't content to stop there, oh no. A Song of Ice and Fire is, after all, a story about Westeros, and for the millennia-old events in Ashai and Eastern Essos to be more than just fun trivia, they need to have a connection to ancient Westeros. Well, good news. I'm here today to show you that not only did the ancient dragon lords of the Great Empire of the Dawn make contact with Westeros, they actually had a hand in shaping some of the most important events related to Azor High, Lightbringer, The Last Hero, and The Long Night. So hey there, friends, it's Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and I'm back with part two of my revamped Great Empire of the Dawn theory, which me and my friend Dern Dernden came up with five years ago before anyone else, blah 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 blah. If you like these mythical astronomy video essays, then please click the like button, share them, subscribe to the channel, and if you have the means, consider tossing a coin to your dragon via our Patreon campaign, which you can find at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. Thanks to all our patrons, and be sure to check out our Patreon appreciation music video that I made on our YouTube channel if you haven't already. Alright, let's start with the hard evidence, as we did last time. One of the best, most concrete clues about the Great Empire of the Dawn being a Dragonlord civilization was the fused stone that was used to build the enormous walls of the Five Forts. The Five Forts are pretty firmly dated to before the Long Night, while Valeria is known to have arisen after the Long Night, and the Five Forts are in the further east, where Valeria was never known to have come, so they are pretty much smoking gun evidence that history has somehow lost track of an empire of dragonlords that existed before the Long Night. Rather, history didn't lose track of them, they are remembered as the Great Empire of the Dawn in Yeetish history. But here on the other side of the cultural bottleneck, which was the Long Night, the historians seem to have lost track of the fact that they were dragonlords. They also failed to link them to the long-vanished people who built Ashai by the Shadow, the ones Septon Barth talks about reading of in an ancient Ashai text, which states that... A people so ancient they had no name first tamed dragons in the shadow and brought them to Valyria, teaching the Valyrians their arts before departing from the annals. Now, it's hard to say if Septon Barth knew about the existence of the Five Forts when he wrote this. I tend to think yes, but either way, they sure do bolster his case for an Ashai race of dragon lords who came before Valyria. Nearly a thousand vertical feet of fused stone fortress wall, rendered in the form of five separate monstrous forts, the five forts have stood, quote, undisturbed by time for thousands of years, as only fused stone can. They compare very well to the dragon roads of Old Valyria, which are similarly made of fused stone and have similarly stood undisturbed by time for eons. The five forts really can only have been built by dragon lords. Dragon lords with a purpose, that is, and we think we've found those dragon lords in the Great Empire of the Dawn. Even more exciting is the fact that we find something similar over in Westeros, a fused stone fortress which can be reliably dated to before the Long Night. Though not nearly as large or imposing as the Five Forts, it is, like the Forts, hard evidence, which sends a clear message that dragon lords were here, in Westeros, in the Dawn Age, making fortresses, all right. So, where is this mysterious fused stone fortress of Westeros? Well, it's in Old Town, right under the High Tower. The stony island where the High Tower stands is known as Battle Isle even in our oldest records, but why? 
What battle was fought there? When? Between which lords, which kings, which races? Even the singers are largely silent on these matters. Even more enigmatic to scholars and historians is the great square fortress of black stone that dominates that isle. For most of recorded history, this monumental edifice has served as the foundation and lowest level of the high tower. Yet we know for a certainty that it predates the upper levels of the tower by thousands of years. Alright, so the famous high tower of Old Town stands on a little island in the Whispering Sound, which is where the Honeywine River meets the sea, and there's a fortress at the base of the tower, literally underneath of it, which is made of black stone and predates even the oldest version of the high tower, of which there were said to have been five. What kind of black stone was it, you ask? Knowing the answer full well will be fused black stone? Well, here's the next paragraph from The World of Ice and Fire. Who built it? When? Why? Most maesters accept the common wisdom that declares it to be of Valerian construction, for its massive walls and labyrinthine interiors are all of solid rock, with no hints of joins or mortar, no chisel marks of any kind, a type of construction that is seen elsewhere, most notably in the dragon roads of the freehold of Valeria and the black walls that protect the heart of old Volantis. The dragon lords of Valeria, as is well known, possess the art of turning stone to liquid with dragon flame, shaping it as they would, then fusing it harder than iron, steel, or granite. Aha, so you saw this coming. It's the fused stone that is the hallmark of the Dragon Lords, which is why the Maesters think it could be Valerian. There are timeline issues with that, however, as I alluded to, and the style doesn't seem to match either, which is why the Maesters go on to consider the possibility that the fortress is not Valerian. More troubling and more worthy of consideration are the arguments put forth by those who claim that the first fortress is not Valerian at all. The fused black stone of which it is made suggests Valeria, but the plain, unadorned style of architecture does not, for the dragon lords loved little more than twisting stone into strange, fanciful, and ornate shapes. Within, the narrow, twisting, windowless passages strike many as being tunnels rather than halls. It is very easy to get lost amongst their turnings. Mayhaps this is no more than a defensive measure designed to confound attackers, but it too is singularly unvalerian. Alright, so the plain, unadorned style of fused stone construction here might be a match for the five forts, which are described as having straight slabs of fused stone and are not described as having ornamentation. Although, of course, we can certainly forgive a bit of artist interpretation with all the amazing five forts artwork from Martin H. Mathis that we've been featuring in these episodes. Thanks so much for all your work, Martin. They look amazing. Now, this style of construction analysis is by no means a conclusive match, but as I mentioned, the timeline already suggests that this Battle Isle Fortress is too old to be Valerian, so it's not really surprising that the style doesn't match theirs. As to those tunnels, well, they can't have been carved by men, because, well, you, you can't carve fused stone, that's kind of the whole point of it being magically indestructible. Tunnels carved by men is also the very boring explanation here. We are bored. Yeah, I'm bored. It's actually far more likely that those tunnels were made by dragons, which is the Grandpa Simpson No, you're talking! explanation, and that's what we want. Kidding aside, we do know that dragons can bore into rock to some extent, much like their fireworm brethren, as we see Viserion carve out a hollow in the brick of the Myrenes Pyramid where he's confined in a dance with dragons. And the line there is, Viserion had dug himself a hole in them with flame and claw, a hole big enough to sleep in. If a young dragon like Viserion can do that, then it's definitely possible that the more extensive tunnels in the Battle Isle Fortress could have been made by dragons. 
And unless you believe someone imported fireworms here to Battle Isle, there's really not another contender for something that could have made these tunnels. So, in the end, we have to conclude that these tunnels were almost certainly made by dragons, probably the same dragons that created the fortress. Incredibly, but perhaps not unexpectedly, there are actually rumors that dragons did once roost on the walls of this fused stone fortress. How old is Old Town, truly? Many a maester has pondered that question, but we simply do not know. The origins of the city are lost in the mists of time and clouded by legend. Some ignorant septons claim that the Seven themselves laid out its boundaries. Other men that dragons once roosted on the Battle Isle until the first high tower put an end to them. I believe that we have here a case of the rumors being pretty much dead accurate. The fortress is made of fused stone, which requires dragons and dragon lords, and accordingly, there is a hazy memory of dragons literally chilling on the walls of the fortress. This brings us to our next question. Did the ancestors of the high towers slay those dragons, as this passage suggests? Or did they perhaps ride them and use them to make their fortress? The maesters tell us that, quote, men have lived at the mouth of the Honeywine since the Dawn Age, and then go on to suggest that the first settlement at the top of Whispering Sound may have began as a trading post for seafaring traders. Seafaring traders? You mean people who came to Westeros by ship? In the Dawn Age? And they may be the ones who built a few stone fortress which requires dragonfire and sorcery? Hmm, sounds like the Great Empire of the Dawn to me. And the high towers might descend from these people? The reasons for the abandonment of the fortress and the fate of its builders, whoever they may have been, are likewise lost to us. But at some point, we know that Battle Isle and its great stronghold came into the possession of the ancestors of House Hightower. Were they first men, as most scholars believe today? Or did they mayhaps descend from the seafarers and traders who had settled at the top of Whispering Sound in earlier epochs? The men who came before the first men? We cannot know. Men who came before the first men? What now? That is way before the Long Night, and way, way before the fourteen flames of Valyria were even a glimmer in a shepherd's fire. These folks came to Westeros by sea and built with fused stone. If we were starting our exploration with this mystery, we would have the same question arise that we did with the Five Forts. There seems to be a missing, pre-Long Night Dragonlord culture that we need to find. However, we've already found it in the Far East, and the fact that the Maesters are so convinced that seafaring traders were a part of the origins of Old Town gives us the clue we need to understand that the Dragonlords who built here came from far away, by sea. The bit about maybe the high towers descend from these seafaring folk, who knows, indicates that they may be descended from dragonlords, as outrageous as that may seem. Here is the next part of that passage. When first glimpsed in the pages of history, the high towers are already kings, ruling Old Town from Battle Isle. The first high tower, the chroniclers tell us, was made of wood and rose some fifty feet above the ancient fortress that was its foundation. Neither it nor the taller timber towers that followed in the centuries to come were meant to be a dwelling. They were purely beacon towers, built to light a path for trading ships up the fog-shrouded waters of Whispering Sound. The early high towers lived amidst the gloomy halls, vaults, and chambers of the strange stone below. It was only with the building of the fifth tower, the first to be made entirely of stone, that the high tower became a seat worthy of a great house. That tower, we are told, rose 200 feet above the harbor. 
Some say it was designed by Brandon the Builder, whilst others name his son another Brandon. The king who demanded it and paid for it is remembered as Uthor of the High Tower. Once again, I will point out the timeline here. If the fifth iteration of the tower is still dated to the time of Brandon the Builder and Uthor Hightower, two figures from the Age of Heroes slash Dawn Age, then we are indeed talking about before the Long Night and before Valeria. Now, it's kind of strange that the first Hightowers would live on Battle Isle in the gloomy halls and chambers of that few stone fortress, although it would certainly make more sense if they were related to the Dragon Lords who built it. That would also explain why they would be accepted as kings by the first men, and why they would have started off wealthy and powerful. There's also a very slick naming clue being fed to us here with Uthor Hightower's name. Uther Pendragon, U-T-H-E-R, was the father of King Arthur, and the word Pendragon means head dragon. The word dragon, used this way, also implies warrior, so Uther Pendragon was basically being called a figurative dragon and a warrior chief. The coolest part about all this is that according to Joffrey of Monmouth in his Historia Regum Britannae, Uther acquired his Pendragon epithet when he witnessed a, drumroll please, portentous dragon-shaped comet, which inspired him to use dragons on his standards. Wowzers! And this is the name that George chose for the first named Hightower? A name associated with comets, dragons, kings, and even shining swords like Arthur's Excalibur? Well, these clues actually make a ton of sense if the High Towers are indeed descended from the Dragon Lords of the Great Empire of the Dawn. And it's really not as crazy as it sounds. The High Towers have a long tradition of magic and interest in the occult, as Quinn from Quinn's Ideas and I discussed at length in our Winds of Winter predictions video about the High Tower, which is called the High Tower. And that tower itself pretty much just reeks of Sauron or Thank Palantir symbolism. There are even signs that the Church of Starry Wisdom, which was founded by the Bloodstone Emperor and is known to operate in port cities around the world, may have some strange dockside temples in Old Town. Those would be the ones visited by Marwyn the Mage, an Archmaester of the Citadel who has been to a shy and likes to play with glass candles. I do plan on doing a full video about the potentially rising influence of the Starry Wisdom cult in A Song of Ice and Fire, so I'll leave it at that for now. Another reason it's not crazy to think the High Towers might descend from the Great Empire of the Dawn people are their looks. We don't get a glimpse of many High Towers in the books to judge their appearance, but what we do get gives us a couple of clues that they may have Dragonlord features. Alicent High Tower married King Viserys Targaryen and gave him four children, all of whom had the trademark Valerian look. And we have seen many times that darker-haired genetics tend to overrun the silver and gold-haired Blood of the Dragon genetics. That means that Alicent was at least fair-haired and blue-eyed, else some of her children would probably have come out with darker looks and eyes other than purple or blue. As a young girl, Alicent was the nursemaid for the old King Jaehaerys, and in Fire and Blood we read that it is said that, at times, the king thought her to be one of his own daughters. Now, Jaehaerys was very old and likely suffering from a bit of dementia here, but this sort of confusion could really only happen if Alicent actually looked like one of Jaehaerys' daughters, meaning if she looked Valerian or at least close to it. Allery Hightower, meanwhile, who was between age 36 and 43 at the time of the main story, is twice described as having silver hair. In one place she's called silver-haired and handsome, and another time it says her long silvery braid was bound with jeweled rings. Now, some people do, of course, get silver or gray hair early in life, 
but the description of long silver hair implies that it's fully silver and has been that way for at least the couple of years it takes to grow hair that long. In other words, it might not be the silver of age, but of genetics. Finally, and perhaps most tellingly, we have Sir Jorah Mormont comparing Lynness Hightower, his first wife and Allery's sister, to Daenerys, saying, Why, she looked a bit like you, Daenerys, when asked. That's pretty interesting, right? Jorah's aunt, Lady Mage Mormont, says that She had hair like spun gold, that Lynness, skin like cream. Valerians are known for hair of silver and platinum white and also gold, so this is a potential match, and she looks a bit like Daenerys. The explanation may be that House Hightower has a bit of latent Dragonlord blood in their veins. Heck, Lynnessa's father, Lord Leighton Hightower, may be in on the secret, having given two of his children dragon names, Baylor and Alisan. I'll also just mention that Alicent Hightower wasn't the only Hightower to marry a Targaryen. Garmund Hightower married Raina Targaryen, who is Raina of Pentos, Rider of Mourning, the last Targaryen dragon before Danny hatched her three, as well as the ill-fated Cerise Hightower, one of Maegor the Cruel's Black Brides. While none of these three examples are conclusive, I do expect that we'll see more from House Hightower in the Winds of Winter, what with Sam and Euron both at Old Town, so perhaps we'll get an answer on this. Personally, I find the Uthor Hightower, Uthor Pendragon clue pretty convincing. But here's the thing. Whether or not the Hightowers are descended from the Great Empire of the Dawn is an interesting question, but it's actually secondary to our main point in this section, which is simply that the presence of the few stone fortress, reliably dated to before the Long Night, indicates that a pre-Valerian, Dragonlord culture, came to ancient Westeros and founded the first settlements at Old Town, Westeros' oldest city. That can only have been the Great Empire of the Dawn. Why did they come? What did they do here, besides building a fortress? Is this where the name of Battle Isle comes from, which is as old as anyone can remember? Well, to the last question, yes, I do believe that the Battle Isle name must stem from some ancient conflict, probably where native Westerosi resisted the Dragonlords, because, after all, the Dragonlords didn't conquer Westeros at this time, and whatever mark they left has been mostly obscured by history. As to why they came and what they did, I think we can find the big clues about this in the Westerosi house that is most obviously descended from the Great Empire of the Dawn. Say it with me now, House Dane. The Danes of Starfall are one of the most ancient houses in the Seven Kingdoms, though their fame largely rests on their ancestral sword called Dawn and the men who wielded it. Its origins are lost to legend, but it seems likely that the Danes have carried it for thousands of years. Those who have had the honor of examining it say it looks like no Valyrian steel they know, being pale as milk glass, but in all other respects it seems to share the properties of Valyrian blades, being incredibly strong and sharp. Yes, where did they get that sword? It's almost too easy to say, well they got the sword Dawn from the Great Empire of the Dawn. But yeah, I mean, it does make a certain amount of sense. Dawn is basically white Valyrian steel for all intents and purposes, and something that advanced has absolutely no business being in ancient Westeros thousands of years ago, which was firmly stuck in the Bronze Age at that time. The Danes are counted as first men, and in A Feast for Crows, Gerald Darkstar Dane says that My house goes back 10,000 years unto the dawn of days. So we are indeed talking remote Westerosi history here, almost certainly well before the Long Night. 
Not only was the raw steelworking needed to make Dawn beyond the skills of the first men at that time, Dawn is clearly an unbreakable magic sword along the lines of Larian steel, which presumably required powerful sorcery to fashion. If anyone around in the time before the Long Night had the know-how and magical ability to make a kind of forerunner to Valerian steel from a magical meteorite, I mean, wouldn't that be the Great Empire of the Dawn? We don't know if Dawn was made with Dragonfire, but Valerian Steel is. So, if Dawn was too, then it would have been something only the Dragonlords of the Great Empire of the Dawn could have made. Consider again those kingly ghosts with gemstone eyes that Daenerys sees in her Wake the Dragon dream. They were holding swords of pale fire. Now, we don't know if the sword Dawn can catch on fire, but it's described as pale as milk glass and as being made from a pale stone. So pale fire is perhaps what we'd expect if it were to blaze up. Dawn does seem to glow a bit. It's described as being alive with light. And the fire seems to be implied. For example, when Ned tells Bran the story of Arthur Dane and Dawn, afterwards it says Bran, quote, went to sleep with his head full of knights in gleaming armor, fighting with swords that shone like starfire. None of this stuff about Dawn is conclusive yet, but a great empire of the Dawn origin for the sword does fit everything we know about Dawn pretty well. As most of you know, the symbolism of Dawn suggests Lightbringer. Son of the Morning and Lightbringer are both translations of the Latin word for Venus, which is Lucifer. Although Venus is, of course, a planet, it appears to us on Earth as the largest star in the sky, and it's called the Morning Star because it rises just before dawn during half of its celestial cycle. In other words, the Song of Ice and Fire terms Lightbringer, Sword of the Morning, and Dawn all derive from the same Venus-based mythology. I don't know if Dawn is the Lightbringer, or perhaps if any flaming sword can be considered a Lightbringer or can become a Lightbringer, but there does seem to be a very strong link between the sword Dawn, which resides at Starfall in Westeros, and Lightbringer, a myth from Ashai and the further east. Gee, how could a magic sword myth from the far east be connected to a magic sword in Westeros? I wonder, I mean, they're just, they're just so far away, what could possibly link them to... Okay, well, I'll stop. You get the picture. The presence of the Great Empire of the Dawn at nearby Old Town, nearby to Starfall, relatively speaking, makes it very plausible that either the Sword Dawn itself, or the knowledge and technology needed to make it, came to Westeros via the Great Empire, and the mythology and the symbolism of Dawn and Lightbringer suggest a link. People have always wondered if Dawn might not be Lightbringer, but there's always been that huge gap between Ashai, where the Azor High and Lightbringer mythology comes from, and Starfall, where House Dane lives. The Great Empire of the Dawn theory, as promised, solves that puzzle by bridging that gap and providing us a conveyor belt of plausibility by which things, people, and ideas can travel from the Far East to ancient Westeros in the Dawn Age. Even the symbolism of House Hightower fits into this approximate symbolic family. Check it out. Their sigil is a white lighthouse crowned with red flame, and their words are, We light the way. I mean, compare, if you will. A white glowing sword like Dawn, or a flaming red sword like Lightbringer, which brings the dawn and the morning, versus a white lighthouse tower, which lights the way with the crown of flame. And books of spells, of course. The flaming lighthouse tower of House Hightower is even set on a field of gray smoke, just like the meteor-induced smoke ash and debris that caused the darkness of the long night, of course. Well, according to my theory, anyways. Whatever the Dane house words turn out to be, they will no doubt be complementary to We Light the Way, and I think the link between Dane and Hightower will be even more obvious. Much like the first Hightowers lived and built on Battle Isle, an island at the mouth of a river, the Honeywine, so too did the first Danes, who built Starfall on an island at the mouth of the Torrentine River. 
The high towers are thought to descend from ancient mariners who came to Westeros in ancient day, and the first Danes do indeed sound like they too migrated to Starfall. At the mouth of the Torrentine, House Dane raised its castle on an island where that roaring, tumultuous river broadens to meet the sea. Legend says the first Dane was led to the site when he followed the track of a falling star and there found a stone of magical powers. His descendants ruled over the western mountains for centuries thereafter as kings of the Torrentine and lords of Starfall. It doesn't say where the Danes came from, but they do seem to have come here by following signs in the heavens, driven by the need to make a magical meteor sword. Lightbringer is associated with comets, and the Bloodstone Emperor worshipped that black meteorite, so we are seeing a familiar set of ideas here. We're also seeing some familiar Dragonlord looks amongst the members of House Dane, even more so than House Hightower. Pretty much everyone remembers the tall and fair Ashara Dane's famous haunting violet eyes, which we hear of early on in A Game of Thrones. But even more telling are Barristan's words describing Ashara in A Dance with Dragons. Even after all these years, Sir Barristan could still recall Ashara's smile, the sound of her laughter. He had only to close his eyes to see her, with her long, dark hair tumbling about her shoulders and those haunting purple eyes. Daenerys has the same eyes. Sometimes, when the queen looked at him, he felt as if he were looking at Ashara's daughter. That's quite the resemblance, no? Ashara Dane has dark hair instead of light, but her eyes and features are apparently enough that Daenerys reminds Barristan of Ashara. It's very like Danny reminding Ser Jorah of Lyness Hightower. The reason why Daenerys reminds people of Lyness Hightower and Ashara Dane may be that they all share an ancient common ancestor, and because in A Song of Ice and Fire, these kinds of magical bloodline traits persist far longer than they actually should. And it's not just Ashara by any means. Gerald Darkstar Dane is even easier to spot. Ariane watched him warily. He is highborn enough to make a worthy consort, she thought. Father would question my good sense, but our children would be as beautiful as dragon lords. If there were a handsomer man in Dorne, she did not know him. Sir Gerald Dane had an aquiline nose, high cheekbones, a strong jaw. He kept his face clean-shaven, but his thick hair fell to his collar like a silver glacier, divided by a streak of midnight black. He has a cruel mouth, though, and a crueler tongue. His eyes seemed black as he sat outlined against the dying sun, sharpening his steel. But she had looked at them from a closer vantage, and she knew that they were purple. Dark purple, dark and angry. Purple eyes and silver hair would be obvious enough, but then Arion flat out compares his look to that of Dragonlords. All right, message received. Something is up here with House Dane. And in case you're wondering if some Targaryen may have married into House Dane in the past to give them these quasi-Dragonlord looks, there is no record of such anywhere. I definitely checked. Diana Dane married Makar Targaryen, but no Targaryen has married into House Dane that we have been told of. George R.R. R. Martin has said that the Danes are not directly related to the Targaryens, and the Danes are also not named among the Westerosi houses that are descended from Valeria, which are House Targaryen, House Valerian, and House Celtigar. I believe that the answer is that House Dane shares a common ancestor with Valeria, which is, of course, the Great Empire of the Dane. I mean, Great Empire of the Dawn. So far, we are two for two with Danes, whose physical descriptions we have been given, having some sort of Dragonlord look with Ashara and Darkstar Dane. Unfortunately, we never get a description of Sir Arthur Dane of any kind. 
However, there's one more Dane that gets a physical description, and a closer look at him brings us to three for three. She had always heard that Dornishmen were small and swarthy, with black hair and small black eyes, but Ned had big blue eyes, so dark they looked almost purple, and his hair was a pale blonde, more ash than honey. Alright, so this one isn't quite as obvious, but remember that Targaryens have eyes that range from purple to blue in both light and dark shades, and their silver and gold hair can run to blonde and ash. Valar Targaryen, for example, has cool blue eyes, and Fagon slash Young Griff, who is likely a Blackfire, has eyes which are dark blue in daylight, purple by light of dusk, and black in lamplight, and lashes as long as any woman, according to Tyrion, for what it's worth. Egg of Duncan Egg, also known as Aegon the Unlikely, has eyes that are described very similar to Young Griff. They're described as large eyes, which are dark blue, almost purple in one passage, and in another, Dunk thinks, in the dimness of the lamplit cellar, they looked black. But in better light, their true color could be seen, deep and dark and purple. Valerian eyes, thought Dunk. So Ned Dane compares very well to the descriptions of Egg and Fagon, and I can't help but notice that George arranged to make him the squire of Beric Dondarrion, who famously wields a magical flaming sword that reminds us of Lightbringer. Ned Dane ended up Beric's squire because his aunt Illyria Dane, who I like to call Illyria Valyria, was engaged to Beric, and I can't help but think this is a nod from the author to prod us to think of Lightbringer together with House Dane. Speaking of Valyria Dane, I noticed a couple of naming crossovers between Dane and Hightower, which are kind of interesting. There's Illyria Dane and Allery Hightower, Gerald Dane and Gerald Hightower, and perhaps even Vorian Dane and Dorian Hightower. Oh, and of course there's Uthor Hightower and Arthur Dane. <laughs> we might want to mention that one, since that represents the author connecting both House Dane and House Hightower to King Arthur and Excalibur, which is an obvious influence on all of the Lightbringer ideas. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that Egg's father, Makar Targaryen, married Diana Dane. And though we are not given Diana's physical description, there are reasons to think that she had Dragonlord looks as well. Even though Makar's mother was Mariah Martell, who passed on her dark-haired looks to some of Makar's siblings, like Baylor Breakspear, all of Makar and Diana Dane's children came out with standard Valerian looks, save for one who has sandy brown hair, and that's Daron the Drunkard. Daron's darker hair is no doubt a legacy of his grandmother, Mariah Martell. But the point is that if Diana Dane had had dark looks, her and Makar's children wouldn't have come out almost completely Valerian-looking. Instead, it seems that what happened is that Diana may have injected a fresh batch of Dragonlord looks into the Targaryen line, giving Makar a batch of mostly Valerian-looking kids. Egg later married the dark-haired Black Betha Blackwood, and their kids then had incest for two generations leading up to Ares and Rhaella, who look prototypically Valerian, and their children, Rhaegar, Viserys, and Daenerys, who also all look Valerian. This means that Diana almost certainly had some silver hair and purple or blue-eyed genetics in her veins. And in fact, that would actually be a potential reason for Makar, a prince of the blood royal, to marry a woman from a relatively obscure house like Dane, since the Targaryens are always trying to maintain their signature look, and hat tip to Aziz from History of Westeros for that Diana Dane analysis. By the way, because Diana Dane's blood was only watered down once by Egg's marriage to the Blackwoods, because, like I said, it was all incest from there down to Ares and Riella, both John and Danny actually have a significant amount of Dane blood. If we were speaking in very imprecise genetic terms, you could say they have up to 25% Dane blood. 
you know, just in case someone heroic needed to wield Dawn for the last battle. I mean, Ned Dane is too young and Darkstar is unworthy, so John or Danny's lineage could actually be relevant at some point. John is the obvious candidate to wield Dawn if its purpose is to be swung like a sword, but I also hold out a possibility that Dawn's true purpose could be something more magical. Perhaps it's a milk glass candle, for example. And so in this case, it could actually be Daenerys, who is destined to get her hands on Dawn. Either way, I just want to point out that John and Danny both do have a significant amount of Dane blood, even without any more obscure sort of parentage theory. So, there you have it. Speaking of Azor Ahai and Last Hero Matters, you may recall that in the first Great Empire video, I mentioned that out of the five names given for Azor Ahai, we can trace four of them to places in the east. Neferion to Nefer, Hercun the Hero to Hercun, Yintar to Yiti, and Azor Ahai to Ashai. But that the fifth name, Eldric Shadow Chaser, was kind of an oddball. There are no matches for the Elric name in the east, however, there are derivatives in both House Dane and House Stark which of course are the two houses most likely to be associated with the last hero. The Danes, because of the sword Dawn and their symbolism, and the Starks, because, well, they're the Starks, and the others seem to be mainly their problem. Alright, so first off, we can observe that the Shadow Chaser moniker is a great title for someone who fights the others, who are called White Shadows, Pale Shadows, Cold Shadows, Shadows with Teeth, and so on. The name Eldric, as some of you may know, is a very clear nod to Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnibene, who wields a magical and highly cursed black sword called Stormbringer, and who basically looks like a young Bloodraven. He has a ton of parallels to Bloodraven, Jon Snow, and the general idea of Azor Ahai, and George has cited Elric and Michael Moorcock as big influences of his many times. The name Hercoon is actually also from Elric of Milnibene. Elric's cousin Irkun, Y-R-K-O-O-N, also wields a magic sword called the Mornblade, which, I know, Sword of the Morning, Galadon of Morn and his magic sword, yes sir. Even cooler is the fact that the Mornblade and Stormbringer were once part of one sword, a dragon sword, which was broken in half to release the spirit of a dragon that was locked inside. And yes, this stuff is really cool. I highly recommend you read Elric. Finally, the name Eldric itself is German and means Sage Ruler, making it a pretty apt name for an Azor Ahai or Elric of Milnibene type figure. So back over at Starfall, we find the tale of an Ulrich Dane, who was of course a Sword of the Morning and was considered one of the greatest knights of his time. We just mentioned young Ned Dane, and his full name is Edric. Edric Shadowchaser Dane, Squire of Beric, don't call me Azor Ahai Don Darien. Got it. The thing is, Edric Dane is considered to be named after Eddard Stark, hence the shared Ned nickname, which demonstrates that in Westeros, as in the real world, you can honor a naming tradition with slight variants. That's exactly what we find with House Stark, which serves up two Edric Starks, one Edric with a C, and an Edric Snowbeard Stark with a CK. If Edric is a variant of Eddard, then that means Eddard can be a variant of Edric. So we have to count all the Eddard and Edwiles and Edwin Starks, and even the uber-fantasy-sounding Edarion Stark. Then we have Ned's great-great-great-grandfather, Elric Stark, who I like to call Elric of Winterfell Nibine. I'll give you a second to recover from that. Sorry, sorry. But there's also an Alaric Stark, the one who may have had a thing going with good Queen Alysanne Targaryen, which is why I call him Fly Alaric. Ugh, okay, bad naming jokes aside, you can see what I am pointing at here with all this Eldric, Elric, Edric stuff. Eldric Shadowchaser may have been the Westerosi name for Azor Ahai or the last hero, who may or may not have been the same person. And if so, 
it makes sense to see the two houses associated with last hero ideas carrying on an Eldric naming tradition. In the case of the Danes, it may be basically the same pattern as we saw with the other four Azor Ahai names, a people formerly part of the Great Empire of the Dawn, who fled the destruction of its downfall, started a new kingdom, and retained their own version of the flaming sword hero myth. The Danes just went farther, perhaps following the established route to Westeros, which we know existed due to the few stone fortress at Old Town. Another of George's big influences is, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and its surrounding lore. And let me tell you that George has definitely read the Silmarillion. Remember how I called the Great Empire of the Dawn theory kind of like finding a lost Numenor? What's well, actually more true than you may realize. For any who do not know, Numenor was absolutely Tolkien's version of Atlantis. It was a once glorious and now vanished star-shaped island in the middle of the Atlantic Sea equivalent in Tolkien's world, from which the most fabled race of men came from. You may recall Aragorn saying that the blood of Numenor flows in his veins. That's what we're talking about. Aragorn's ancestors, Elendil and Isildur, who combined to defeat Sauron in his physical form, are also of this line. Elendil was actually the one who led his people away from Numenor for Middle-earth in the nick of time. Because Numenor, as an Atlantis parallel, of course, grew prideful and corrupt, and met a violent and sudden end, naturally. Now, the name of Aragorn and Isildur's ancestors, well, on Numenor, they were called the Edain, and in Middle-earth, the Dunedain. Edain, Dunedain, House Dane, yes, that's right. And it gets much worse. You may recall that Aragorn was given a reforged sword by the elves called Narsil, which was the one that Isildur used to cut the One Ring from Sauron's hand after it was broken. Narsil means red and white flame in the elvish language, so now our eyebrows are shooting off our foreheads. Dawn is a glowing white sword, and Lightbringer was said to burn red. So these correlations with Narsil are very strong. If the Danes fled the Great Empire of the Dawn and came to Westeros with the sword Dawn, then they'd be mirroring the Edain and the Dunedain quite closely. Given that Dawn seems very much like a last battle kind of sword, just like Narsil, and given that Jon Snow, who has some amount of Dane blood, has very strong Aragorn vibes, this all makes a ton of sense. Wonderfully, George seems to have also transferred some of the Dunedain lore onto House Hightower, which is a nice piece of evidence for our theory. So check this out. When those Dunedain fled Numenor and came to Middle-earth, turns out they built some stuff. One thing they built was Orthanc, the Tower of Isengard, which you may remember from the Lord of the Rings as Saruman's Tower. That's the one at which Gandalf is held captive and then rescued from by eagles, and then later Orthanc is surrounded by tree ents and flooded. The notable thing about Orthanc being built by the Dunedain is that... It seemed a thing not made by the craft of men, but riven from the bones of the earth and the ancient torment of the hills. A peak and isle of rock it was, black and gleaming hard. Four mighty piers of many-sided stone were welded into one. In other words, the black stone of Orthanc sounds a lot like fused black stone, such as we find at Battle Isle. The Dunedain coming to a new land and building a fused black stone tower really does sound a lot like the Danes and their fellow Hightower refugees from the Great Empire building the fused black stone fortress, which would become the base of the Hightower in Westeros. Orthanc and the Hightower also compare well to one another because atop Orthanc, Saruman sits in isolation, watching the world through the Palantir Stone. And atop the Hightower, from which you can supposedly see clear to the wall, we find Lord Leighton Hightower and his daughter Malor Hightower, the Mad Maid, consulting books of spells. Euron's goal in attacking Old Town may be to perform some sort of dark magic atop the Hightower, which would be an even better correlation to Orthanc and Saruman. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that little dose of Lord of the Rings. Many thanks to my friend Blue Tiger for picking up on those clues ages ago. And check out his blog for more Tolkien, A Song of Ice and Fire parallels. Link in the description. I think we can be fairly confident that House Dane and House Hightower descend from the people of the Great Empire of the Dawn, just based on the A Song of Ice and Fire evidence, which is why I presented that first. But the parallels to the Dúnedain of the Lord of the Rings and to Uther Pendragon of Arthurian myth are the sort of clever literary clues that really seal the deal of authorial intent for me. And heck, here's another cherry that takes the form of a literary clue. Think about the Tower of Joy scene, the place where baby Jon Snow was born. Who's there outside the tower, fighting Ned and his six gray wraiths, as his six companions appeared to him in his fever dream? Why, it's Arthur Dane and Gerald Hightower, come to witness the birth of the promised prince, who may be the culmination of whatever business the Great Empire was up to when it first came to Westeros. Business that surely involves both Dawn and the others. Okay, so let's see if we can't pull all this together. At some point before the Long Night, the Great Empire of the Dawn, who counted Dragonlords among their number, used their arcane arts to raise a fused stone fortress on Battle Isle, most likely with the purpose of establishing trade with the Children of the Forest and or the First First Men. They don't seem to have had a large presence, as we've not found fused stone anywhere else as of yet, and as there are only a few tales of dragons to be found anywhere in Westeros, almost all of them tied to Old Town, with the others being a couple of one-off tales of dragon slayers like Davos Dragonslayer, Serwyn of the Mirror Shield, and Galadon of Morn. The Great Empire of the Dawn did, however, leave a small genetic fingerprint on the land which would become the Seven Kingdoms, in the form of House Dane and House Hightower at the very least, and they may have left one of their magic swords behind. That's actually the heart of the matter. Lightbringer, Dawn, Azor High, the last hero, and the idea of beating back the others during the first long night. Many people have connected the Ashai tale of Azor High defeating the forces of darkness to end the long night with the Westerosi tale of the last hero slaying the others with an unbreakable sword of dragonsteel. And that makes a lot of sense. Both heroes are using a magic sword associated with dragons to defeat the minions of the long night and thereby the long night itself. Many people have also looked at Dawn, an unbreakable, glowing magic sword called the Sword of the Morning, and thought, well, perhaps this is the magic sword which ended the long night and brought the morning. And again, I say this is both logical and intuitive. Dawn could be thought of as Dragonsteel simply based on its meteoric origin, since we know that comets and meteors can be seen as dragons in both the real world and within a Song of Ice and Fire mythology. And if Dawn is Lightbringer, then it's even more strongly associated with dragons, since Azor Hyreborn is prophesied to wake dragons from stone. So now, in light of the Great Empire of the Dawn theory, we can sort of fill in these gaps. The sword Dawn was most likely the Dragonsteel sword that the last hero used to defeat the others. And it was most likely similar in nature to whatever magic sword was used by the various flaming sword heroes of the further east. Azor Ahai, Nefarion, Hercun the Hero, and Yintar. We don't know whether there was only one flaming sword, only one lightbringer, or whether this was more of a technology that could be duplicated. But I think we can say that Dawn is either the lightbringer, or at the very least, a lightbringer sword. I tend to lean towards the latter option because of Danny's vision of the gemstone emperor ghosts where they were each holding a sword of pale fire. But the important thing is simply to connect lightbringer, Dawn, and the last hero's dragon steel, and to realize that the origin for all of this magical flaming sword business was the Great Empire of the Dawn. Further corroboration lies in comparing the Night's Watch oaths to the symbolism of Dawn, House Dane, and Lightbringer. Remember how Sword of the Morning is taken from Son of the Morning, a translation of Lucifer, the Latin word for Venus, while another translation of Lucifer is Lightbringer? Surely you do. 
Venus is called the sun of the morning and the light bringer because, as the morning star, it rises just before the dawn, sort of heralding or ushering in the dawn. So now, those Night's Watch vows, I am the light that brings the dawn, the sword in the darkness. Yes, it's more Venus symbolism, and it's also obvious Lightbringer talk when we add in, I am the fire that burns against the cold. So, a warrior who is a flaming sword that brings the dawn. All right, does anyone know that guy? In other words, the Night's Watch oaths, the names Dawn and Sword of the Morning, and everything related to Azor Ahai's Lightbringer all come from the same Venus mythology. And I have to think this is done to reinforce the very basic conclusion that the reader wants to intuit. These things are all related to one another. Somehow, Dawn was Lightbringer and the last hero's Dragonsteel. Here's one final bit of evidence that this was the case, and here I'm drawing from another video of mine called Dawn is the Original Ice, the Last Hero. The first time that we ever see Ned Stark polishing his Valyrian steel greatsword named Ice in the Winterfell Godswood, we're seeing through Catelyn's eyes, and she informs the reader that although the sword is 400 years old and forged in Valyria before the Doom, quote, the name it bore was older still, a legacy from the Age of Heroes. In other words, the Starks have been naming their ancestral swords Ice for thousands of years, long before they acquired the current Valyrian steel sword called Ice. Where could this tradition have started, I ask you? Well, the answer is surprisingly easy to come to. We just established that the last hero probably wielded Dawn against the others. Not very controversial. Setting aside the fact that Dawn is thought of as belonging to House Dane, who do you think the last hero was? Probably a Stark, right? The story of Ice and Fire has basically two poles. The Starks and the others on one end, and the Targaryens and the dragons on the other. The others are obviously tied to the Starks, and the last hero myth is a northern myth, one which we first hear told to Bran early on in A Game of Thrones. Thus, most people have always assumed the last hero was a Stark. And the two characters who seem to be echoing the last hero in the current story are also Starks, Bran and Jon. So where does that leave us? With a Stark last hero, wielding Dawn, and leading the Night's Watch into battle against the others in the battle for the... Dawn. Ah, there's that word again. Now try to picture this in your mind. A stark last hero, leading the Night's Watch against the White Walkers, and in his hand, a big white sword that can withstand the cold of the others. A big white sword. So where did the Stark tradition of calling their most important sword ice come from? Yes, that's right. It would seem that it came from the last hero's use of dawn, a big, unbreakable white sword. It isn't made of ice, but it kind of looks like it is. As pale as milk glass is the description of both the sword Dawn, as well as the bones of the melting White Walker that Sam kills in a storm of swords. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not proposing that Dawn was made from the shin bone of a White Walker. Rather, I'm saying that this is symbolism. And I go into further detail on all the symbolism linking Dawn to the Starks and the idea of an ice sword in that Dawn is the original ice video, and actually part two as well. But here's the important part. This mythical memory of a Stark wielding a sword of, quote, ice is actually just a corroboration of the hypothesis that the last hero, almost certainly a Stark, wielded Dawn, the unbreakable big white sword. As to why Dawn ended up residing in Starfall with House Dane, the answer now suggests itself. Because it belonged to them in the first place. Because the sword Dawn was Great Empire of the Dawn technology that came to Westeros in the hands of the ancestors of House Dane. They must have loaned it to the Starks, or perhaps some other circumstances arose to put Dawn in the hands of the Stark last hero at just the right time. Heck, perhaps the Stark last hero killed a Dane and took Dawn from his dead hands. After all, we see Ned do more or less that same thing at the Tower of Joy, killing a Dane 
taking Dawn, and then after a great war is over, Ned returns Dawn to Starfall. Could this be an echo of history here, with a Stark having used Dawn for a short time in a very important war, and then returned it to Starfall after the you know Battle of the Dawn was over? However it happened that the last hero got his hands on Dawn, we've said from the very first that the Great Empire of the Dawn is really the only plausible source for the technology and spellcraft needed to forge Dawn at that time, which was long before the rise of Valyria, or even the arrival of the Andals, who brought the art of making steel to Westeros. Thus, it makes sense to find it in the hands of the Danes, who are the most obvious descendants of the Great Empire of the Dawn. Now here's the best part. All of this may happen again. The Danes may once again loan out their magic sword to a Stark last hero, which would, of course, be Johnny Boy, the special snowflake. Or perhaps it won't be alone. Perhaps Darkstar will have stolen it then, as I have theorized, and someone will have to straight-up kill him and take it. Again, echoing the Tower of Joy, where Dawn was taken from Arthur Dane after he was slain. There is actually ample symbolic foreshadowing for Jon Snow to wield Dawn, so check out those Dawn is the Original Ice videos for more on that. Now, assuming R plus L equals J will be true in the books, as I do, I really do like how all this could come together, with Jon echoing the Stark last hero and leading the Night's Watch against the others with Dawn in his hands, but with Jon having the bloodlines of Stark, Targaryen, and Dane in his veins. As for Daenerys, the other major incarnation of Azor Ahai Reborn, well, she'll be right there with Jon in all likelihood, throwing her dragons into the fight against the others. And she'll be bringing with her not only the blood of Targaryen and Dane, but also the secret knowledge of the Great Empire of the Dawn that waits for her in a shy. With Marwyn the Mage almost certainly bringing Daenerys a glass candle in the next book, and with further contact with Quave the Shadowbinder seeming inevitable, Danny will no doubt learn whatever truth there is to be gleaned about those Dawn Age Dragonlords from Ashai. And it's probably going to be one of the key pieces of information which leads Daenerys to make her all-important, arc-defining choice to turn away from her quest for the Iron Throne to confront the others as she must. Whenever she meets Jon and hears about the others and the threat of the new Long Night, she'll probably be putting that together with the prophetic words of Quaithe and the Undying, as well as whatever she learns about the Great Empire of the Dawn and why they came to Westeros at the time of the first Long Night. As the final Scions of the Morning, it will be up to Jon and Daenerys to put the pieces together and right the wrongs of the past, bringing this very long chapter of ice and fire to a close. A chapter which started in a shy in a little old kingdom called the Great Empire of the Dawn. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for watching. As you can see, I did quite a lot of work on this video. I love this Great Empire of the Dawn stuff. Hope you're enjoying it too. If you are, don't forget to check out these three live streams that we've done over the past few weeks. And I'll see you again soon with some new material. Don't forget to like, subscribe, click the notification bell, share it with your friends, sign up for Patreon if you're so moved. And I'll see you again soon. And yes... I'm back in lovely California, as you can see.